Well, I am excited. We are going to be starting a new series today. I was going to do Psalm 150 today and kind of close our time in Psalms. And, and, and we've been in a, in a series of Psalms throughout the summer. But I felt like today needed to be an introduction for what we're going to be talking about in September. And I'm going to be spending some time answering some questions in this new series. And uh, our series is called Worthy, How to Worship a King. And it's going to be, uh, I'm going to be explaining a lot about the tabernacle that was in the Old Testament. I'm going to be talking about the elements in the tabernacle, how Jesus uh, related to those elements, how Jesus represented those elements, how he worshiped God using the pattern of the tabernacle and how we worship God in the same way today or how we can worship God in the same way today. So I'm going to be answering questions like, what is true worship? And does God have a preference to be worshipped? Does he have a preferred way to be worshipped? What was the significance of the tabernacle and the temple? How did Jesus worship his father? And so next week, I'm going to take us on a journey through the tabernacle. And if you're new to the Bible or, or uh, new to church, the tabernacle, in, in essence, was a portable tent. And God gave Moses specific instructions for how to build this, this thing called the tabernacle. And it was this, this tent, but it was a meeting place for God to meet with his people. And his physical presence resided in the Ark of the Covenant that was kept in the tabernacle. And so we're going to look at each of these elements in detail. And we're going to see uh, how, um, how they're seen in the life of Jesus and how we can apply them to our lives today when we worship God. So this series is going to be about biblical worship. It's going to be about true worship. I'm so excited to jump in with you. But I want to ask the question today, what is worship? Most of the time when we talk about worship, we think about the musical vehicle, don't we? That worship has this musical element to it. And, uh, you know, I I uh, I started leading worship... Uh, right around the time I learned the, the only four chords needed to lead a worship song. And if you play an instrument or you lead worship, you know that you only need four chords to lead any worship song. G, C, E minor, and D. And then you throw a capo anywhere on the guitar uh, to change the key. But you only need those four, four chords to play a worship song. And so I learned those four co- chords. I had about three songs under my belt. I remember them now. They were Blessed Be Your Name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the secret, but not like the slow version, the fast version. In the secret, in the quiet place. And then I think the other one, it was a, it was a Mac Powell song. It was a third day song. I don't remember. But my mom, she saw that I knew these four chords. And my mom was the youth pastor of the church. And so she made me the worship leader for the youth group. When I was about 14 years old, in fact, my buddy Josh is here in the back, and Josh was in that youth group with me. He was a, he's a childhood friend. He's visiting us today. He remembers all this, and I remember leading worship when I was 14, and it would go something like this. Dun, 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 blessed be your name in the land that is planted for your streams of a... And the person on the gym bay is going, what is he doing? No, I, I, I've been leading worship since I was 14, and when I was 21 years old, I was hired at a, at a church uh, to lead worship for a big youth group in Gresham, Oregon. And a couple years later, I became a worship pastor, a uh, full-time worship pastor for a bigger church in um, Newburgh, Oregon, and I was there for seven years as the worship pastor. And I've been leading people in worship on Sundays with instruments and singing, but worship is so much more than music. 
Now, I don't want to downplay the musical vehicle here because the music that we have of worship, that tool of music is such a powerful tool. But I love, I'm reading this book called How to Worship a King. It was written by a guy named Zach Neese. And um, I'd encourage all of you to pick up the book. It's an amazing book. And, and he talks about all these things we're going to be talking about in this series. But he wrote this in his book. Here's the dilemma for churches today. That if worship is only music then it can be categorized into styles and volumes. It can be packaged, produced, and marketed. It can be consumed by its human audience. If worship is only music, we can judge it as pleasing and appropriate or displeasing and inappropriate. We can decide whether we will engage in worship based on our own preferences and moods. If a song does not express my preferred style or reflect my current mood, then I don't have to like it or participate in it. When you reduce worship down to the musical vehicle, you miss the essence of what worship is. Music is just the tool to help you engage into true worship. Mark 12, 30, Jesus said this. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And to do that, To love the Lord with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Music helps us engage our being, all of our being, into loving God in that way. How many of you know, if you've been going to church for some time, you know that we serve a God who is three persons, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's a triune being. How many of you know that you are also a triune being? You have a body. You have a soul. You have a spirit. And when you love God with all your body with all your your mind your soul your strength worship helps you get to that place music helps you get to that place i would say this that if one part of your triune being is disengaged then it's not true worship for example if my mouth is singing but my heart is not engaged is that true worship no If I'm singing songs of love, but my spirit is dead in unbelief, that's not true worship. See, music, it helps to move our bodies to love the Lord, right? When we we listen to music, what do we do? We clap, we dance, we sway, we get into it, we raise our hands, and it helps us engage our bodies into the worship of the Lord. Music moves your soul. How many of you have listened to a song and just began to weep because it touched your heart? How many of you have ever listened to a song and you become glad and you get excited and maybe you're in your car and you just feel like, man, today's the perfect summer day. You got your jam playing in the car and you feel that. It's moving your soul. It's moving your emotions. If you still don't believe me that music moves your soul, I want you to go home today and watch the movie Jaws with the sound off. Because half of the intensity of that music is the, I'm gonna eat you, I'm gonna get you music. Right? Without the music, Jaws is just this silly giant rubber fish. Okay? Music moves your soul. And how many of you know that music moves your spirit? That in Samuel, when Saul, King Saul, was being tormented by an evil spirit, what did he do? Nothing. He had David come in and play music that soothed his spirit. Music has a way, it's a vehicle, it's a tool that engages our whole being into the worship, into the love and the admiration of God. But that right there, the love and the admiration of God, that is what we're going to get at through this series. We're going to be talking about that. And music is just a vehicle to get us there. Worship is more than just music. I want to talk to you about a word called 
worthship. And no, I didn't say worship with a lisp. Worthship. Worthship. This word, uh, the, the word worship is compressed from an old English term, worthship. And it literally means to give something worth, to demonstrate value for something. Demonstrating value, it costs us something. To value something, we have to put a price on it. And that's why worship is often associated with sacrifice. Because worship is sacrifice. Worship is giving something to the Lord that costs you something. It's letting him know that he is worth it, that he is worthy. It's what worthy means, that God is worth it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5, we see the very first time the word worship is used in the Bible. And it's this story, you're familiar with it. In Genesis 22, Abraham is bringing his son Isaac up to the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And this is what he says in Genesis 22, 5. He, said, he, looks, he turned and said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and come back to you. We will worship? Worship? What he means is I'm about to go give God the most precious thing I own the most precious thing in my life, the most valuable possession of mine, I'm about to go give it to God. I'm about to sacrifice it to the Lord. That is what he means by worship. God is worth it even more. The word worthy means that God is worth it. Now, thankfully, God does not want us sacrificing our children to him. So he provided the ram In place of Isaac, he provided the sacrifice so that Abraham didn't have to give his son to the Lord. God provided the sacrifice. How many of you know that God is still providing the sacrifice today? That he provided the person of Jesus Christ so that that you can be free to have a relationship with him. He paid the price of death so that you don't have to pay that price. God is still providing the sacrifice. God is still providing a way to get to know him. Because and, he, and he, 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 he provides that way so that we look at that price, at that thing, at that sacrifice that he gave us, and we give him our worship because of it. We give him our love and our adoration. Let me, let me, let me describe this, um, this word worship with a different illustration. And ladies, I think you're going to pick up on this illustration. Uh, l- let me say this, that the cross is God's engagement ring. The cross is God's engagement ring to humanity. Now, ladies, when you announce your engagement to somebody, uh, did you, uh, hopefully, you know, most, most, most women won't text their friends. They won't email their friends and say, I'm engaged. No, what, what do women do when they want to tell their friends that they're engaged? They have a, a pretty, you know, I got a, a weird look on their face. I got a smile on their face. And they, they walk into the room with their hand extended like this. Huh, 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 huh? And they're showing everybody what? The ring. That was the wrong hand. It's on this hand. <laughs> showing everybody the ring. They want their friends to see the ring. And in that moment when their friends are coming up to the ring, are they asking questions about the man? No. They don't care about the man. They don't care about, about whether his breath smells good or bad or, or, or what this or that. No. When, they, when they're approaching the ring, they have one thought, one question, one, one question that they're pondering in their heart. How does he value you? How much, is, how much are you worth to him? Now, I'm not trying to shame of those of you who got like a, a Cracker Jack box ring for your wife, okay? That's not what this is about. 
But, but, the, but the ladies, the friends of this fiancé, the friends of the soon-to-be bride are asking the question, how much does he value you? How much are you worth to him? Are you valuable enough for him to eat nothing but ramen noodles for six months? Are you valuable to him so much so that he's going to ride his bike to work every day to save money on gas and car insurance? How much does he value you? The price of the ring. She shows them the ring, and in their economy, the price of the ring shows the world how much he values her. Now, church, the gospel is God's engagement ring. He emptied heaven to give you his most precious possession, and the lost are watching you. The people far from God are watching you, and they're wondering, do they really believe what they say they believe? Does God really exist Does he really have the power to save and transform? Is he worth following? Is he worth living for? Church, what they're really asking is, show me the ring. Show me the price. Show me how much he loves you and how thankful you are in return. Show me the ring. They want to see the sacrifice. And what our worship does is it puts that on display for people to see. When we worship God, we are saying, look at how much God loves us. Look at how much he emptied heaven. Look at how much he gave us. And it shows them the price, the cost, the value that he has for us. And then in in turn, it shows the world how much we value God. They want to see the ring. Church, God has called us all to reveal Jesus through the world, through our faithful worship. And if you are a follower of Jesus then your primary role in life? Some of you may have asked the question, what am I here for? What is the purpose of my life? Here's your primary role. Your primary responsibility in this world is to be a worshiper. You are a worshiper. First and foremost, you are a worshiper. The Bible calls you a priest. You are a priest. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I'm a priest. This is what 1 Peter 2.9 says. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter, the author of this, is saying, You don't have to wonder who you are. You are chosen. You are a priesthood. You are holy in God's eyes. See, most of us, we define ourselves by what we do. We define ourselves by our achievements, by our accolades. And if I'm a guitar player, I'm a guitarist because I play guitar. And if I play football, I'm a football player. We place so much emphasis on what we achieve or accomplish by our own own strength that it begins to define our purpose in life. And that mentality, that mentality of what I do defines who I am, that has crept into the church. And it's given us really messed up religious views of ourselves. Let me ask you this question, church. Do you want God to use you? No, don't answer this. I don't want you to answer this out loud, but ponder this in your heart. Do you want God to use you? Most emphatically, most people would say, absolutely, I want God to use me. Now, let me ask you this follow-up question. Do you want your friends to use you? Do you want your spouse to use you? Do you want your boss to use you? Do you want the government to use you? Most people would say, absolutely not. 
No way. I don't want to be used because when you're used, you're viewed as a tool instead of a person that, has, that is a member of the family of God. You're seen as a tool. See, here's some good news for you, church. I want you to understand this today, that God did not create you to use you. He created you so that he could know you. God did not create you so that he could use you. He created you first so that he could know you, that he could have an intimate relationship with you. The problem with being a hammer is when it breaks, what's it good for? It's junk. It's no good. And people have been hurt by the church because at some point they were viewed as an object rather than a member of the family. And religion teaches us that I am because I do. I am valuable to this church. I am valuable to God because I serve him, because I tithe, because I I pray every day, because I do this, I do that. I'm a good Christian. I am because I do. But the gospel says something else. It says you do because you are. You love God. You worship God. You give him your adoration because you are valuable. And Jesus defined that price that was on your life. You are valuable to God. Therefore, you worship out of, that, out of that sense of security that I don't have to earn my love. I don't have to do anything for God to accept me or know me or, or want to get to know me better. No, I am valuable, so I'm going to love out of, that, out of that identity. I'm a worshiper. I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. I don't face condemnation. I don't face shame. So I can, I'm free to love I'm free to forgive. I'm free to introduce people to Jesus without thinking how it's going to affect me and what it's going to do to my reputation, how it's going to make me feel. No, you do because you are. That's what the gospel says. So how did you become a priest? Because for all of history, the priesthood has been the most exclusive occupation in the whole world. From the time of the Old Testament where the tribe of Levi, they were the only ones appointed to be the priests. And even in the Roman Catholic Church, it was the priests alone who who could read Scripture because the Bible at the time was in Latin and nobody else could read the Bible. Nobody else could come before the the Father. They had to listen to a priest, read it to them. The, The priesthood has always been the most exclusive occupation on earth. So how did you become a priest? Well, did you know that the priesthood was never intended to be restricted to a certain tribe or a certain people group? This is fascinating. Maybe some of you didn't know this. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 through 6, God said this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole, the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Did he say a tribe of priests? He said a kingdom of priests. All of Israel... You are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. The invitation was for all of Israel to participate in the priesthood of heaven. But what happened? The golden calf happened. Idolatry happened. Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments. And as he's walking down the mountain, he sees the people of God. He sees Israel worshiping this golden calf that they had made. 
And he became furious, and God became furious, and there was chaos, chaos that broke out in, in all of Israel. And Moses said this in Exodus chapter 32. Moses said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they were the only ones who came. And God instructed them to grab their swords and slay the idolaters. Pretty heavy stuff. And God chose the tribe of Levi to operate as his priests because they loved they, they loved and honored God more than they loved and honored their society. God chose the tribe of Levi. So how does that translate to you? How did you become a priest? Well, the Bible says that the moment you were saved by Jesus, you were drafted into the priesthood. You became a priest. And we're going to talk about this in the tabernacle, but there was a, there was a moment on the cross in the tabernacle, um, we're going we're to talk about this in a, in a couple weeks, in a few weeks, but there was, a, uh, there was a holy place, and there was the holy of holies, and what separated the two places, and the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's presence was, and what separated those two places was this, this thick veil from, from ceiling to floor. It was this giant veil, and it separated the priests from entering in the holy of holies, and only once a year would the priest step into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the the sins of the nation. And the Bible says that the moment that Jesus died, the veil was torn. The thing that separated people from getting into the presence of God, it was torn in half. And it gave everyone access to the presence of God. You became a priest when you got saved, when you invited Jesus into your life. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a priest. So what do priests do? What do now that I'm a priest, what, what do I do as a priest? What do priests do? I've got three things for you today. <clears throat> what do priests do? As a priest, the first thing is this. As a priest, I steward meeting places. I steward meeting places. See, in the Old Testament, God gave Moses instructions for how to build this tabernacle. And it was the job of the priesthood, it was the role of the priest to set up the tabernacle. And when the cloud of God's presence, God God moved with Israel uh, in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the cloud of God's presence moved, it was the priest's job to pack up the tabernacle and move it to a new location, and steward a new meeting place. Because why, why was God's presence residing in a tabernacle? Why, why a portable tent? Why not a solid building or something else? Why was it a tabernacle? Well, God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to live among his people, and wherever his people went, he wanted to go with them. And so it was the priest's job that wherever they went, God's presence was there with them. And the priests were there to steward connection points for people and for God. Church, you steward meeting places. You are the connection point for the world to meet with God. And wherever you go, to the grocery store, to your family's house, wherever you walk, wherever you drive, wherever you go, you steward meeting places, connection points for the world and for God. It is your role as a priest to steward meeting places, to make connections between God and his people. The second thing is this. 
As a priest, I carry the presence of God. I carry the presence of God. Like I said before, the presence of God was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And it was kept in the holiest of holies in the tabernacle. And, And the presence of God physically resided in this Ark. And only the priests were allowed to move and carry this ark because they were the only ones aware of the proper way to carry the presence of God. God gave them clear instructions when he wrote out the law, when he, when he gave Moses instructions for, for how to build the ark, how to build the tabernacle. He gave them clear instructions that only the priests are to move the ark. They're the only ones who are aware of the proper way to carry the presence of God. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see an instance of somebody who wasn't a priest touch the Ark of the Covenant, touch God's presence, and this is what happened. In 2 Samuel 6, David, he planned the most extravagant worship service in Israel's history. And they placed the Ark of the Covenant on a cart that was led by ox. And as they were moving the Ark to Jerusalem to celebrate this worship service that King David was throwing, the ox stumbled and the Ark started to fall off the cart. And a man named Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark and he grabbed hold. And as soon as he touched the Ark, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7 says, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the Ark of God. What? Why did Uzzah die? All he was trying to do was steady the ark. Well, verse 7 says that he died of irreverence. Here's the the lesson from this church is that wise people do not attempt to handle God's glory. They don't lay hands on or try to manipulate the presence and the power of God. You can't manipulate God's presence. You can't manipulate his power. You can't lay hands on it. God is so much sovereign. He's so much, he's so much above us, so much more full of, of, of holiness. And Uzzah was unaware of this holiness. He was unaware that he was a sinful man, that he should not lay hands on the presence of God. And he touched the ark and he died. And David, he becomes furious. David is upset because, God, you just killed one of my worship leaders. I got to find a new worship leader now. But then David did his homework. He thought about it. Why did this happen? He did his homework and he went back to the law and he realized the reason for God's anger. And the reason was that the presence of God was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of priests, not led by ox. On the shoulders of the priests. And the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, was supposed to be carried on poles, not placed on a cart. They weren't following the way that God had designed for them. So, so wait, where did David even get the idea? I mean, they'd, they'd been transporting the Ark of the Covenant for, for years and years and years, for, for decades and decades and decades. Where did David suddenly get the idea to place the Ark of God on a cart led by ox? Well, the answer is in 1 Samuel 6. And in 1 Samuel 6, there's this story of of when God allowed the ark to be taken by the Philistines because of Israel's disobedience, and they were hard-hearted, and they were turning away from God, and so God allowed the ark to be taken by the Philistines. But everywhere that the Philistines tried to store the ark, the cities that they stored the ark in would, would break out in plagues, and they were just tormented by the presence of God. This ark was just... Anywhere that they took the ark, the cities would break out in plagues. And finally, the Philistines said, we've had enough. We're going to give it back. We're going to give it back. 
And they sent it back to Israel. And guess how they sent it back to Israel? On a cart, led by ox. David thought, well, since the Philistines did that, shouldn't we be able to do that? I mean, it would be a whole lot easier. I mean, ox are a lot stronger probably, and that would probably work out. Why can't we do that? I mean, we saw the Philistines do that. Shouldn't the people of God be allowed to do that? But here's the lesson, church. Just because something works for the world doesn't mean it will work for the people of God. You are set apart. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a holy people. God has a greater standard for your life because he's called you to a greater purpose. What works for the world doesn't work for you. We see the world engaging in all of these activities, and we think, well, they're doing it. What's, what's the matter with me doing it? How come I can't do the same things? God says, because you're not like them. You are set apart. I have, set, I have chosen you to represent my power and my glory and carry my presence and steward meeting places. You have a great purpose on your life, a great calling on your life. Therefore, you cannot act and behave like the rest of the world. You can't do things the way that the world does things. You have a greater standard, a greater calling on your life. And what works for them does not work for the people of God. The third thing is this. First, first one is I steward meeting places. As a priest, I carry the presence of God. And number three, as a priest, I minister to God. I minister to God. This is kind of a new concept for some of us. That, and this is the essence of of what worship is and and ministering to God's heart. It's what worship is. But a majority of the Western church has made worship something attractive that makes us feel good and warm and fuzzy inside. And we've made worship about ourselves sometimes. We want God to minister to us. And when the music is too loud or it's not what we prefer, we don't engage because It doesn't cater to my needs and my desires. I'm not feeling it. I'm just not in the mood because it's about me. It's about my preferences. It's about what I want. Some of us come to church and we're exhausted and we're tired and we just need a touch of God. And don't get me wrong, God is so good and he loves his people so much that when you offer up praise and worship to him, oftentimes he meets you in that place and you you walk away with something. But worship is not about you. Worship is is ministry to God. It's ministering to the, God, the, the heart of God, asking him, what do you want? What are your preferences? What do you like? What do you hate? Let me partner with you, God. Let me minister to your heart because you're the one that's worthy of worship. You're the one that's worthy of praise. I'm not. And for the remainder of this series, uh, we're going to describe, I'm going to describe how the priests would minister to God in the tabernacle and how Jesus used that same model of tabernacle worship in his own life, in his own ministry on earth. Because we see the pattern of the tabernacle in the life of Jesus. In the last week of his life, that Passion Week, he modeled for us what that tabernacle worship looks like. And we use that same model in our lives today as we approach God and as we worship him. I have some encouragement for you that... There is someone who has gone before us to show us how to properly worship the Lord. There is somebody who has shown us how to minister to the heart of God, and it was Jesus. Not only are you and I priests, but the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus was the high priest. 
He's the high priest. He represented for us what it looks like to minister to God, to carry his presence. Jesus showed us how to steward meeting places on the earth. He was the high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with grace and with what? Confidence. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus was the ultimate worship leader. He was the ultimate worship leader. During the night of his arrest, Jesus was praying on the Mount of Olives, And he had this moment with God where he's under so much stress. He's under so much weight. He's being pressed by the sin of the world. The sin of the world is literally being placed on his back. And he begins to sweat blood because he's under so much stress. There's a medical term for it. I forget what it's called. But that when you're placed under so much stress, Jesus is, he's starting to sweat blood. And there's this moment, it's this fascinating moment where he says this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 42, it says, Father, if you're willing, would you take this cup of suffering away from me? Jesus says, I don't want this. I don't want to go through this. This is not exciting to me. This is not something I want to do. This, this is unbearable. It's so much weight. But then he goes and he says this, yet I want your will to be done, not my will. God, it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what my preferences are. It's what do you want? What is your will? Worship is sacrifice, and Jesus made the greatest sacrifice as an act of worship to his Father. He said, God, what do you want? What do you want to do? Is there any other way to do this? And God said, no, there's only one way to do this. You have to take it. You've got to go to the cross, You've got to suffer. You have to die for the sins of the world because I so desire to have a relationship with my creation. And the only way it's going to happen is if you die. Okay, God, I can do that because I love you more than I love my own preferences. Jesus lived his life to honor his father. He never sought his own glory. He never sought his own fame, his own worship. He never sought that. He sought the worship and praise and honor and glory of his Father everywhere he went. And he, mo- he modeled, excuse me, he modeled for you and I what that looks like. That we don't seek our own glory. We don't seek our own fame. We don't seek our own praise and worship. We seek one person's fame. We seek Jesus' fame. We want to lift him up. He led the way for you and I to give our worship unconditionally to the Father. Church, grab your communion cups with me. The reason that we do this, and we're actually going to talk about this in the the next week. One of the elements of the tabernacle, it was called the table of showbread. The table of showbread. And and some translations called it uh, the table of face or the, the face bread. And this was a moment in the tabernacle where it was a face to, it was face to face interaction with God. It was this time where 
This table was low to the ground. The table of showbread was low to the ground. It had, uh, it had bread. It had a cup of wine on it. And this is before Jesus' sacrifice. This is before Jesus told his disciples, this is my bread and this is my, or this is my body, this is my blood. This is before all that. The priests would, would sit on the ground and they would eat this bread and they would commune with God. And we're going to talk in this series about how this, this table represented Jesus. But, but what Jesus did with his disciples, imagine, I want you to imagine this for a minute. Imagine being a Jew, and for all your life, for all your life, every Passover with your family, you would get out this bread, you'd get out this wine, and you don't fully understand it. You just know that it was written in the law that God commanded that this is the way it was to be done, that you know that in the tabernacle they have this table of showbread, that there's bread and there's wine, but you don't fully understand why bread, why wine, why are we doing this? Imagine being a Jew growing up all your life and your family did this every year and you still don't fully understand why. And then you're a disciple of Jesus. Jesus calls you to follow him and you're sitting at a table the night before he goes to the cross and he breaks bread and he says, hey guys, you know, you've been doing this all your life, right? You want to know what it means? This is my body. And it's going to be broken for you. And this is my blood. And it's going to be shed for you. Imagine being the disciples going, Whoa! I figured it out! I understand now. All this time, all, all through the Old Testament, all through our, fa- our, our ancestors' Hundreds of years before this whole time, it's all been leading up to Jesus. It's all been leading up to this moment. And Jesus says, my body is about to be broken for you. And on the cross, Isaiah 53 53 says that his body was crushed. It was bruised. It was pressed for your iniquities, for your sin. And then Jesus lifts up the cup. And he says, this is my blood. And it's for the forgiveness of your sin. I get it, Jesus. I understand it. And Jesus told his disciples, keep doing this. Do this in remembrance of me. Always come back. I want you to do this with your church. And all throughout the book of Acts, when the first century church gathered, they all did this together. They gathered together and they took communion together. If you read the book of Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about how to properly take the Lord's Supper because some of them would, would, would eat before everybody got there and some of them were, 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 were exalting the rich in, in the Lord's Supper and then some were you know, casting the poor out and Paul's saying, no, 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 this is a family ordeal. When you take communion, take it with your church family. Take it with the people of God and remember the, the reason that you're here. This is to remember why you're here. It's to commune with God once again. It's called communion because we we come face to face with Jesus once again and say, I remember what you did for me. And I won't ever forget it. So would you lift up the body, the bread, the cracker? Jesus, we thank you that you did this for us. Lord, your body was broken on the cross so that our bodies could be whole, they could be healed. And Father, We receive that healing. We remember that price that you paid. And your word says that by your stripes we are healed. God, we we receive that promise. We receive that blessing. And we thank you, Jesus, that you broke your body for us. And we, we love you. We worship you. We honor you. 
we remember. Let's take it together, church. Jesus, we take the cup that represents your blood. And Father, in this moment, we realize that this is truly the only way that we can have a relationship with our Father. That we've tried on our own power. We try, we try, we try. We do our best to do good things and make ourselves right. But Father, your word says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. That we can't even come close to your holiness, to your righteousness. But you love us so much that you made a way for us to be holy. A way for us to be righteous so we can have a relationship with you. And it was through the shedding of the blood of Jesus. God, we thank you that there is a way now to be your child, to approach the throne with confidence. Not with our faces hidden, not ashamed, but with our heads held high, with confidence knowing that I have nothing that the devil can hold against me. I'm free, I'm clean, in Jesus' name, by his blood. God, we thank you for your blood. We thank you for the sacrifice. And we solidify this and drink this together. Amen. Church, take this together.